Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord in heaven, you have called us, your people, by your name. You have united us in faith to Jesus Christ. And so today as we come to study your word, we recognize that we will learn again how Jesus has won a victory, and that we are united in him to that victory. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be with this congregation. I pray that you will grow us in faith and love for Christ. I pray that you would deepen our certainty of your promises and secure those to us. More than that, Father, teach us to walk with you faithfully. Oh, Lord, how faithful you are. God, I want to pray for the needs of this congregation. Some are sick right now, and we pray for their healing. Many are sick with various seasonal things, others with COVID, others who are recovering from various surgeries. We pray that you would heal each of them, but while they wait upon you, would you especially strengthen them to look to you as the God of comfort and peace. Lord, with certainty, there are people in this room who are grieving. They are grieving the the heavy weight of this world. Many have anxieties or fears or sorrows related to circumstances. Some have lost loved ones and they grieve that. Or they just generally grieve with fear that which is unknown to them. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak profoundly to them in your spirit and by your word. And that you would be the God of all comfort, who comforts us in the midst of all affliction. Father, we also pray for our government. We pray for the president, the vice president, those who serve in the Senate and the House, the federal judges. We pray for our governor, the state legislature, for the various justices who've been elected and appointed around the state of Alabama. We ask you, God, through these authorities which you have put in place to bring forth justice, take care of those who are oppressed and in need, Would you preserve and protect life from conception to the very end? We ask, Father, that you would cause your church to thrive. Every place where your gospel is faithfully preached, where your word is open, would you cause those pulpits to flourish? And now, God, as we come to study your word, we pray that you would quiet us. Help us to see our Lord Jesus and his victory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Take your Bible and let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians 15. whole chapter has been about resurrection. This was clearly one of, if not the most crucial issues in Corinth. 
And so the Bible is really emphatic. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. For those who trust in the Lord Jesus by faith, those who've embraced Christ, there's another historical fact. Your own resurrection is likewise assured. It is coming. But more than that, death and resurrection also becomes an ongoing biblical life pattern. As I follow Christ, as I lay down my life in his service, God comes behind me and makes a promise. He says, I will bring, de- I will, I will bring life out of your places of death. Not just in the single circumstances of your life, but certainly when you physically die. Today, we come to verse 50, and I want you to see with profound clarity the results of Christ's victory. And so we pick up 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Here is God's word. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, And the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray now that you would give your people ears that we might hear what your spirit says to the church. I pray, Father, that you would be willing to use an ordinary, wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ. We pray that you would show us these things by the help of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. It, It was a punch in the stomach. And I didn't see it coming, but I should have. Thirteen years old, I'm walking down the hall in seventh grade from a crowd of eighth grade older students. A 15-year-old eighth grader steps over and grabs me by the middle of the shirt, pulls me over to an alcove to talk. Hey, word's gone around that you told on me for smoking. Oh, really? I don't know what you're talking about. It was a brilliant statement. I thought I'd step aside and move along with my day. The boy turned around and now his back is to me and he scans the hallway. And then he turned around 
with a punch right in my stomach. And as he punched me in the stomach, he said, well, just in case. And I buckled over. I didn't see it coming. I should have. Fast forward from 1986 to 2012. I'm asleep in a hospice room at St. Thomas Hospital in Nashville. And I'm awakened by the voice of the nurse who has been caring for my dad. Sir, I think your dad has passed. And so it was my second ever punch in the stomach. I didn't see it coming. I should have. I mean, I'm sleeping in a hospice room waiting for my dad to die. And as I sat up in the cot, I doubled over again. And I began to weep. Anyone who's ever lost a loved one knows that death always feels like a punch in the stomach. And the most futile and frustrating part about that punch in the stomach is that it always seems that the one who has delivered the punch taunts you. Death, having struck, taunts you. I haven't preached this particular text since September the 30th of 2012. It's a little challenging to be a pastor, and your loved one dies, and then you have to come back and preach. I just didn't have it in me to go back to Philippians. And I wanted to make sure that I assured myself with the Word of God that Jesus actually wins. And so as death seemed to stand over me and taunt me, I preached this text to remind me that it is not death who taunts. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus is standing over death and taunts it himself. But you feel it, don't you? As if death brings a kind of futility to everything. I mean, if there's no resurrection, then does any of this matter in the first place? It is all futile. Paul says, Christ is risen. And yet, who among us hasn't felt the sense of futility in this life? Who hasn't at least had a fleeting question of doubt whether any of this matters? Death really is a punch in the stomach. It is a sting. It really does feel that a snake has struck and its venom is injected. The Bible says, in spite of how that feels, pain, death, sorrow, the enemy never gets the last word. In fact, Christ taunts them. And so our text this morning teaches us that the victory of Christ defangs futility. There's two things in this world that I have grown to hate The first is snakes, and the second is death. And the text conjures up all these images of a scorpion with a sting or a snake with fangs. The Bible looks at that and says death has been defanged. It is still ugly. It still sends chills down your spine as you see it slither by. 
But for those who die and for those who live in Christ, your king has picked up the serpent and he has ripped its fangs from its head and he takes the ugly creature and he tosses it aside. By the power of the resurrection, Jesus has defanged death and all the futility of this life. Paul points us to three specific places where you can see the victory of Jesus Christ. He talks about the mystery, he talks about the victory, he talks about the motivation. We're going to start with the mystery. This is kind of a statement that we talked about last time from verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, in the New Testament, the concept of flesh and blood is this physical body that you are in. And Corinthian believers are confused. They're trying to figure out the precise mechanism of how resurrection takes place. And they stare at flesh and blood and they go, that's impossible. It's just because they can't figure out the mystery. Well, Paul says it's not flesh and blood that inherits the kingdom of God. It's the spiritual part of you. And so when you embrace Jesus Christ... As your Savior, it is not your skin, it is not your tissue, it is not your physical body that grabs Jesus and holds him. It's the part of you which is spiritual that the Lord has made new within you. Likewise, perishable, it's it's not the part of you that deteriorates. That's not the part that inherits the kingdom of God. The part that inherits the kingdom of God is this inner spiritual part that never can deteriorate. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, when he says, Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day after day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, which is beyond comparison. In our study last week, we saw the distinction between the perishable as a quality and perishable as a process. You currently occupy a body which is in process of perishing. It's terrible news. It's even more terrible if this is all there is. And most people believe this is all there is. At least they live that way. That's why people all around you are consumed with trying to make this face look like it was still young. This body looked like it was still 20. That's why celebrities are consumed with plastic surgery. They're grieving the exact same things that give you hope. We all occupy a perishable body, yep. But in Christ, you do not have to be enslaved to that. Because from this life, through all eternity, the spiritual part of you is being raised imperishable. The spiritual part of you is being made stronger, and that process of inner vitality is happening now and promises to go on through eternity. Those outside of Christ are are striving to do something with this flesh and blood part, the, the perishable part. In Christ, God says, I'll do something about the spiritual part, that which is imperishable. And if you belong to Christ, it's happening to you right now. And it's a mystery which is better than CrossFit or weight training or oil of Olay. 
I've seen that on commercials. This is how the Lord brings us victory, and he defangs futility. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now look at verse 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall, all, and we shall be changed. Now, to, to sleep in the New Testament is a metaphor for the Christian who passes from this life. And the Bible teaches us that there is such thing as an intermediate state. So your loved ones who passed away in Christ today are spiritually present with God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, still united to Christ, rest in the grave till the resurrection. Here's the mystery. There's a day when Christ returns and some people will still be living on that day. We shall not all sleep. But whether your body dies or whether you are standing alive at the moment when the last trumpet sounds, we shall all be changed. And then he says the dead in Christ will be caught up with those who are still alive and we will meet the Lord. This is exactly what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Over in Thessalonica, where people are quitting their jobs because they're afraid they're going to miss the return of Jesus. And he says, you won't miss it. Because it doesn't hinge on you looking for it. It hinges on the trumpet and God summoning you, his people, to be in his presence. Yes, it's a twinkle of an eye. But that trumpet blast is going to call forth those who have been saved in Christ, the dead and the living. Now take a look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. As a pastor, I, I have heard lots of people say this kind of thing over the years. When they see a loved one pass, they, they look at the body and they say, it's as if that person is not there anymore, like it's a shell. And I felt the exact same thing at 4 a.m. on September 21st in 2012. I stared at my dad's body. And I suddenly realized he is not there. Scholars point to two words in these sentences that make the point perfectly. The words are this and must. This perishable body, this mortal body. And so it's as if Paul takes his own finger and points in his own chest and says, this body is nothing more than a change of clothes. And now the word must. It's irrelevant, Corinthians, whether you can visualize what I'm talking about. Because this mystery doesn't hinge on your ability to comprehend it. It hinges on this majestic must. This divine action of God, a perishable mortal body that falls asleep in Christ, must change clothes. It must be raised imperishable. It must be raised immortal. You see how the victory of Christ defangs 
futility. We've looked at the mystery, and now the net result of the mystery is this victory. Let me show you what I mean. Long before Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, God's people were were looking for the Messiah to bring forth victory. And Paul says the day has now come. And so he uses two Old Testament passages to show the victory that our forefathers waited for. He uses Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13. He says the victory is imminent. Look at 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now the word victory is is identical to the word triumph. But sports illustrations are woefully inadequate because in sports you will win today, but you will not win forever. When it comes to the finished work of Christ, the victory is final. And so today, if you belong to Christ and yet you feel the weight of sorrow and fear and anguish, and frustration, if you feel the burden of of languishing in a fallen world, and then death hangs out there for you and for those you love, there are times that these things feel as though they taunt you to the point of feeling like it's all futile. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 8, Even the creation is subjected for a moment to this kind of futility as the curse of sin reigns. But it's not just the creation, he says. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wait, Eric, I actually thought you said we were going to talk about victory. You're talking a lot about grief and pain. And it's because you can't understand the victory until you examine the weapons that Satan wields to hurt you. When Paul thinks of triumph, he thinks of a king who has crushed his foes and the king marches back into the city where his throne resides and he drags those prisoners behind him. And they are vanquished. And the message to his people is, these will never rise again to harm you. I wonder if you can look and see. As Paul quotes Isaiah 25, your enemies are being dragged by your king. Listen to the echoes here. All the way back in Isaiah 25, and you will know if you've read the book of Revelation that in chapter 21, verse 4, the end of the story where God wipes away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, we're sitting in the middle of the story as Paul quotes that promise from Isaiah 25. It's the day that God says, I'll make everything right. He says, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all the faces and the reproach of his people. He'll take away for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. 
Do you know what Isaiah said but didn't understand? There's a Messiah coming and he will win. And Isaiah foretold the promise and Revelation tells us that it will happen and we are sitting here looking because Christ has won it. Then verse 55, O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? That portion is quoted from Hosea 13. It's strangely the opposite of Isaiah 25 because these words are are spoken in the midst of judgment as if to elevate the weight of sting that death might have because of sin. Why is it that all of us inherently have a sense that death stings? Paul explains it in verse 56. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. So Paul makes a a crucial theological point. People don't die because their bodies deteriorate. They die because poison is coursing through their veins. The poison is sin. That's what originally brought death into the world in the first place. And without sin, there would be no death. Paul talks this exact same way in Romans chapter 5 through chapter 7. But there's enough here to get the point. When I was a child, my parents told me that I was about to get booster shots. Apparently, I had gotten a first round of shots. This was the second round, but these were booster shots. And so I kind of got excited in spite of the fact that the word shot was in the name. I had sat in a booster seat, which caused me to be a little taller at the restaurant I had received a boost when my dad lifted me up on the wall at the fair and I could see around. And so I began to think, booster shots, that could make me taller. They worked. Turns out I was woefully mistaken. A booster shot is just another shot. But it is designed to increase the power of what is already at work inside of you. That's what Paul means when he says that the power of sin is the law. Sin is already flowing through you. The law of God is like a shot injected that amplifies the power of sin within you. It either causes you pride because you lie to yourself and you say, well, I'm really doing pretty well. Or it causes you an utter devastation because it exposes the severity of your sin. Booster shots and the law are both good in themselves. But when the law interacts with my sin, it deals forth nothing but death. They can never bring life. Now you can't understand the victory until you know that sin held you hostage and you were set to stand trial for your sin. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is classic Paul. Explain the insurmountable human condition, then burst forth with gratitude over Christ's 
deliverance. He does the same thing in Romans 6, Romans 7, 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 8. And here he attaches this threefold title, Lord Jesus Christ, to communicate that King Jesus is also the same as God Almighty because of sin. You were chained in the enemy's prison. You were within moments of death. When King Jesus on his white horse storms the walls of the city and crashes the defenses and rescues us and then crushes Satan who held you captive. And as the enemy lays dead, Jesus hands the victory over to you. And so the victory of Christ defangs futility. We've looked at the mystery and the victory. We close with the motivation. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn back to verse 1 of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In verse 1, he reminds them of the gospel that every true believer received, upon which every true believer stands, and then he shifts to this conditional tone in verse 2. He says, you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. And so in between verse 1 and verse 58, this is the Bible's quintessential, quintessential teaching on Christ's resurrection and the certainty of your own ultimate resurrection. Verse 58, it's the application of the whole chapter. I suspect this is the moment when the letter was being read in the context of worship at Corinth, that the people there would have been cut to the heart. They would have seen God calls us to something completely different than who we are right now. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Remain loyal to the gospel, and know for sure that your faith and every action that exudes from that faith has purpose and everlasting import. Let nothing move you, but also give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Do Christians ever lose motivation in serving the Lord? I think we do. I know I do. How many have wanted to share the gospel with another person? Couldn't find the motivation to risk it. And over time of telling yourself that you just wouldn't be very good at it anyway, you just gave up, and so now you don't ever tell anybody about the love of God offered through Christ. God says, open your mouth. I will make sure that it is never in vain. And many of you have tried to serve in the church that just took too much time and effort, and you just couldn't see the results. God says, keep serving. 
keep working in the church. I will make sure your labor is not in vain. And so, friends, if you knew for certain that whatever you did in service to the Lord would ensure the outcome, that what you do would have purpose, what would you do with that? What do you see that needs to be done for the church, for the greater kingdom? And then what keeps you from stepping forward to embrace it? Is it easier to ask someone else to do it? But then, would that allow you to abound in the works of the Lord? Is it easier to complain that it is not being done the way you want it to be done? Does that allow you to abound in the works of the Lord? Are you waiting for someone else to help you abound in service to Christ? You're waiting for somebody to set the tee in the ground, put the golf ball on the tee, and then teach you to swing the club so that you can feel accomplished? Or is there labor for Jesus that takes no special training, no grand approval from elders? Everything that the Lord has placed in front of you may be used to serve the Lord. Does it take training? Special approval to love your neighbors? To include other people? To be kind? For the moms and dads at home, when you look in those little faces that the Lord has given to you to raise, every single detail of your care, as you help them see their sin, You help them see their need for Jesus. Whether you wipe their nose or you pray with them at bedtime, you're doing the work of the Lord, and God promises it will never be in vain. Could you go to class? Could you interact with friends and family and recognize that the Lord has given you that as a privilege and a way to serve Him? And could you believe the promise? It'll never be in vain. I wonder if your service to Christ could be described as abounding in the work of the Lord. If not, is it that other things matter more? Or is it that you've settled into a dull futility as if all of your efforts wouldn't really amount to much anyway? Well, God says, here's my gospel. I put myself on the cross and I died to pay for your sins and I rose from the grave So that my victory over my enemies now becomes your victory over your enemies. Sin, futility, death. And so God says, what is holding you back? The victory of Christ defangs futility. You may abound in his service, but you may also rest assured that none of your work will be in vain. Now, the images of trumpet blasts sound the beginning of battle. The images of feasting signal the end of the fight. Because there the celebration has already been won. And so the ultimate physical representation of the victory of Jesus is on display at the Lord's table. For it foreshadows the ultimate and final place where you and I, 
at the marriage supper of the Lamb, will feast with our King who won. And these are the images of God's grace. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would bind your word to our hearts, that we might know you, that we might enjoy the blessing of belonging to you, and that we might learn to live not with futility but with certainty. For you have won and conquered your enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.